Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. We hope you enjoy. Somewhere in Acts, that he like, he like knew all about the Bible and all that stuff. It's almost supernaturally, it was imposed on him all that God's word. Rather, like the disciples, the original 12 disciples of Jesus were with him and knew all this stuff. But Paul like, had this revelation through Jesus of, of, of everything, which is what gives him the authority and the power to, in order to write Romans and all the other books and all that stuff in the New Testament, how he's able to know all this stuff. So in Paul converting, he goes and establishes churches across the known world. He goes to all, to all these cities in Rome and Greece and different parts of Asia and all this stuff. And so he's going establishing churches, kind of like what we see church planters today. So as he's going, he goes, he stops at a church, he starts the church, gathers the Christians there, builds up the leaders, makes sure the church is established. And then he goes to another place and does the same thing there and, and repeats himself as he's trying to start churches and establish Christian leaders and people across the whole world so that the whole world can know about Jesus. And so as he's doing this, he writes letters to all the different churches that he's going to. Or, so he's writing them to like correct them or to inform them or tell them he's coming or what he wants them to learn or whatever, whatever he, he, he feels God's telling him to tell them. And so that's where we find all these different letters. We find Corinthians and Ephesians and, and Thessalonians. And these are all the different churches he's writing to. Well, Rome, the book of Romans is a little bit different because he's not writing to a church that he's already been to, already planted. In fact, Paul's wanting to start a church in, in Rome. He's, he's writing to the Christians there, but he's uncertain that he's going to actually make it to Rome because Rome is like the capital of the Roman Empire. Like, what better place to start a church than the center of the whole known world at this time? And so he wants to start this church and wants to get people on board and wants to start building up these Christians there, but he's uncertain because he's pretty known. If he's writing all these letters and helping start churches, like he's known across the Roman Empire, like they're trying to arrest him. So he's, he's uncertain if he's going to get arrested or killed or something. He doesn't know how he's going to make it. And so he wants to go to Rome, but he's not sure if he's going to make it. So he sends this letter of just everything. He sends like everything. Like in, in all the other letters or epistles, as we call them in the Bible, that he writes to the different churches, he's not like laying out the entirety of the foundation. A lot of them he's writing to the specific context, like specific instructions that he's giving to the churches. Like in 1 Corinthians, he's writing about sexual immorality in the church. In 2 Corinthians, he's writing about like different people who are coming in and teaching false things. And so Rome, in Romans, he's like, he's laying out everything. All the foundations of the Bible, everything that we need to know. A lot of people, a lot of uh, theologians say, if you want to know everything about, about the Bible, read Genesis, Matthew, Romans, and Revelations. Because Romans is so packed of all the other 66 books, that's pretty much huge foundation. So I'm trying to build up this like, understanding that, that Romans is, is packed with so much. And so as he's writing to Rome as the church in, or the people in Rome, he wants to lay out everything, as I said. And so he opens up with the most sweetest, most comforting introduction, first few chapters. He talks about how we are all sinners who deserve the wrath of God. I'm sure that's very comforting to know. If you got a text and I texted you and I was like, hey, you're going to die tomorrow and you've never met me before, I think that's, that'd be a little bit alarming. Well, Paul is... That's how he starts his letter. And so he, he opens up by saying, okay, we're all sinners. We're all fallen. We're unrighteous. We are set before God as worthy of death. And God will impose his wrath upon all the people because we are all unrighteous. So he kind of, he, he outlines the state of who we are as man, the sin of man. And so he says that. And the sin of man is kind of equivalent to, to the wrath of God, showing how they intersect each other. But then, as we get into the, the next few chapters, he talks about our remedy. So first, he, he shows our state, then he shows our remedy. And this is what we talked about a 
pretty much where we ended last time, which is this idea of justification, this idea that we are justified in God. The remedy for all of us as those who trust in Jesus is believing that Jesus died and saved us. So as sinners, we, or as people who do wrong, we, we, when we sin, we are, in a sense, breaking the covenant between us and God. And breaking that covenant results in one penalty, and that is death. Because you are breaking the covenant of life, you deserve death. And so because of this, death is owed. Well, in the Old Testament, what they did in the Jewish, in the, in the Jewish faith, they would sacrifice animals as a way to atone for their death, to pay for the debt that they owed before God. So there was a, if you look in the Old Testament, all throughout, there's different processes to do this in the temple. That was like how God deemed in the Mosaic law. And so God said, okay, I'm going to give you a remedy. And so he sent his son Jesus down, and he sent him to die on a cross, to live a perfect, sinless life, perfect, without any sin, so therefore he didn't owe any death to God because he is God. And he went up to a cross, and he died and, and, and suffered the most excruciating death known to man to pay for all the sins of all the people in the world, therefore making us just with God. Because he, by grace, through grace in which God gave us as a free gift, Jesus died for us. This is what we call justification last time, this idea that we are made just before God, we're made righteous. So we went from having the state of being unrighteous, being like our title is, is dead sinners, to being made justified, righteous before God for those of us who believe in Jesus. And so now we move into kind of where we're going to start up tonight in Romans chapter 6, where, where we move from the state to the remedy and now to the outcome. What does it look like now that we have, we have this remedy from God, this justification? What does it mean to move into, like, how, how do we live our lives now? How are our hearts and minds impacted? And how do we go out from understanding that we are saved by the death of Jesus and make that the center of our lives? And so tonight, as we move from justification, we're going to talk about another big word called sanctification. Generally, like, I'm not too big on giving like big Christian words because it gets confusing and it just sounds like, you know, I'm up here being all smart. I'm not trying to throw that at you. But in some cases, like tonight, it's important to know certain big Christian doctrine ideas because they help, they help you and I really understand what it means to be followers of Jesus. Not just like to fill our heads and make them inflated with big knowledge, no, but so we can take the knowledge that God has given us in the Bible and make it move from our head down to our hearts to change us. And so today will be the, one of the few times we're really talking through like, this idea of big Bible words, because it's important for us to know. And so tonight, as we look at this idea of sanctification, which we're going to define and talk about in a little bit, don't worry, we're going to get there. We, we see this instruction that God gives us to be like him. And so today, as we move into Romans chapter 6, I want you guys to ultimately know that to be more like God, you must be sanctified like God. To be more like Jesus, you need to be sanctified like Jesus. And so we're going to talk about what that means tonight as we open up just to a few, a short passage of 14 verses we're going to read through and talk about just in that section how much there is to unpack about what it means for us to be more like God. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up with me to Romans chapter 6. It's like the last eighth of the Bible or something. If you don't have a Bible at all, we have, we have tons of them for you in the back of that wood table when you walked in. If you don't have one or just need to borrow one for tonight, go for it. Well, until then, if you don't mind opening your guys' Bibles to Romans chapter 6, we're going to do verses 1 through 14. We're going to start, we're going to read the whole passage tonight. Normally, it's just easier for us to like go verse by verse, but tonight I find it really important to kind of give us the whole picture, the whole context, because we're reading a letter after all. Like if I opened like, I don't know, a text message to someone, I only read the middle sentence, it wouldn't really make sense. So we're going to try to read this, this big chunk, and then we're going to break it down little by little. 
In a perfect world, we would read the whole book of Romans tonight, but some of us have 8 a.m. tomorrow, so it's not working. It's not working. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 6. We're going to go 1 through 14. It says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in order that the body of sin, I'm sorry, skip the line, um, be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must, con- must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for forgiveness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This passage is packed with so much we can we talk about that we could be here for hours. But first, we read this chapter, as we read this chapter, we, start that, we see that Paul starts with kind of like a rhetorical question or a question that he answers to himself. He says this, verses one and two. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He's basically like, so if God's gonna like continually forgive me, right? Because Jesus died on the cross forgiving our sins. If, if, if God's gonna continually forgive me of my sins, then like, what's the harm in just continually doing wrong? He's like, no, we're not gonna do that. That's not what we're gonna do. That's not what, that's not what this whole forgiveness grace thing is. No, it's actually something else. What he's saying is that when Jesus died and resurrected from the grave, he took on the debt that we owe. And because we have sinned, we owe our life, kind of like what I stated before. And it's important to know that the sacrifice that Jesus made in place of us sets us free from, from the sin and, and, and the shame and the label that was on us as, as dead sinners who are unrighteous. So what God is saying, or sorry, what God is saying through Paul is that the grace that Jesus died for covers all past sins, all future sins, even present sins. And that means that God has, a, has forgiven us of our personal stuff that's in our life now. So Paul's asking, well, if we've already been forgiven, shouldn't we just continue? And he's like, no, no. We're not, it's not like that we're just covered forever. No, what he's saying is that because we trust in Jesus and believe in him and defeating in sin, then, then that shows that we no longer have to continue living in sin because Jesus already defeated that in the grave. And so tonight, as we get into this idea of what it means to be more like him, we're going to see, like, it's not just about being forgiven once and for all, but what it means to, be, to continually grow and have this holiness that God imparts in us in order to live more like him and represent Christ in our day-to-day lives. See, because trusting and believing in him 
it gives us new life. It's not just, cool, I said I'm a Christian, I said I believe in the Bible, I trust in this Jesus guy who died on the cross, and that's it. Cool, I have, I'm, I'm good, I checked the box. No, it's when we trust in Jesus and give our life to him, we actually get new lives. It says this in verses three and four. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Who were baptized in Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So from, from these verses, we get the symbolism of baptism. If you've been around church for a while, you may have seen baptism here and there, like in different churches and different denominations, they do different things. See the ones where they, they, like, they sprinkle the, baby, the water, holy water over baby's head, or they, you know, they dip them in a little basin. But if you're around here, we do something a little bit bigger. We we have like a little pool, almost looks like a hot tub that we set up. We set it up sometimes outside the warehouse. We do it inside the main auditorium. And people get in, and the pastor and whoever gets in, and they, like, they take a person, they dunk them in, and they, come, they like come back out of water. You know, you've seen like the, the memes where like pastors doing this. We don't do that here. No, we're, we're normal. We don't try to drown people. Anyways, so, so the symbolism we get is more than just like checking a box that as Christians we're supposed to get baptized. No, what the symbolism is giving is death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is just, the physical baptism is just representation of what our lives, what's taking place in our lives when we trust in Jesus. So going down in the water is like being buried. We keep them under, under no matter how, like however the pastor chooses, and then they come back up as resurrection. They're, they're showing that like the water's cleaning off in some sense. They're coming out of the ground, showing that they have new life, that we've been made alive in Christ. And so what Paul is saying, for those of us who have committed to Jesus, we not only are like, physically baptized, but we're spiritually baptized. We're not only f- physically proclaiming that we trust in Jesus and showing the world that we trust in Jesus by baptism, but we're showing that the spiritual baptism makes us new people. And so our hearts and our minds and our status before God have died. They've been buried and resurrected to have, as Paul says, a newness of life. We continue reading in verses 5 through 11. It says this, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In short, we're being told here that when Jesus died, for those of us who believe in Jesus, you and I died. And when Jesus was buried, you and I were buried. And when Jesus was resurrected and he came out of the grave, you and I came out of, our gra- out of the grave that that we died from. This is so important to realize that when Jesus becomes the center of our life, it's like I said before, it's not just a checkbox that we're saying, cool, I'm a Christian, that's just a label I'm putting on myself. No, it's literally like we are transformed into new people because we were dead. Like I said before, we had this debt in our lives that we owed and we were marked as dead sinners that had no hope because we broke our covenant with God and God said that the clear penalty of that is, is our lives. But instead, when we commit our life to Jesus and trust that he has died and saved us and trust that he is the Lord and the Messiah that comes to bring new life in us, we get that new life. So it's important to realize that, that 
we no longer are bound to sin, no longer bound to death because Jesus is not bound to sin or death. And in him dying and resurrecting, we get to see that new life because we are trusting, trusting him to, to, to give us that life. When we're made into new people, we're trusting Jesus and allowing his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. So in, in the Old Testament, it worked like this. Like the, God instructed to Moses that the tabernacle or the temple would, had to be built very specifically. Like there was like, they ended up building like a curtain that was like however many feet thick. And behind is where God literally dwelled. Like as if like the drum cage up here is where God just like he really sat for the, for, for the Jewish people. Like it's not like figurative. It's not just like some like, I don't know, voodoo, hoodoo thing. Like literally he was, he, he was there. That was his dwelling on earth. And the only people who can go in there were the priests. No one else could go in there. If you went in there, like there's like literally accounts of Bible people dropping dead for being in the presence of God who weren't allowed to be. And in that presence is where, is where, the, the sacrifices were made and all of God's specific instruction were to happen and, and like that happened in there. What happened when Jesus died on the cross, literally what happened is when he died, the veil that, that separated the, like the temple from what they called the Holy of Holies, that special place where God dwelled, was ripped apart, symbolizing that God no longer dwelled in a specific place. He no longer dwelled to a geographical location. But for those of us who accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who is God, dwells in us. We are now all the temple of God. And it's not just, cool, God's in me and that's it. No, there are like real life implications to this. There are real life things that happen to us that, that take place when the Holy Spirit comes in us. Like, it's called being baptized in the Holy Spirit because again, like being made new is not just physical through the baptism, but it's spiritual and, and the Holy Spirit becoming like a place in our hearts. See, when the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's not just, what changes is that we are no longer living in sin because before we have God, we're living in sin entirely. Like that's our label, living in sin. We might as well have a tattooed on our forehead or something, living in sin. But when we trust in God, we no longer are living in sin. We're no longer deemed as sinners. We're just people who sin. And yeah, that still makes us sinners, but it's entirely different because the implications of God being in us means that his spirit is guiding us when we trust in him, to move away from sin. For those of us who are saved and trust in Jesus, there, is this, there should be this, this moving away from, doing, from going against God. What I'm not saying is that for, those, for people who don't believe in Jesus or don't have the Holy Spirit in them, it's not like every single thing that you think to do bad, like, like you do. Like if I want to go murder someone, I'm just going to go do it. Like, no, we all have to have consciences. Conscious? Yeah. So what I'm saying is that we now have God in us, pointing us to his will in order to, to meet his will and to act in that new life. The difference is, is that you and I no longer have to be bound to that sin. You and I no longer have that label that holds us to our sin. We don't have to be stuck in shame or regret or, or, or succumb to the sin in our life because that no longer has to be like our marker as living in sin. But now we just become people who sin. Paul continues with this and he says in verses 12 through 14, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin we have no, will have no dominion over you since you, you are not under law but under grace. When we are made new, when our old self is dead and our new self is 
put on, we're no longer subject to that sin in our life. But instead, we get to live out our life that kind of embodies what we're going to talk about in a minute is this idea of sanctification, how to be sanctified, how to be holy. What it says is, is when it talks about don't present your members to sin, but then later on it says present your members to God as instruments for righteousness, it's talking about like our, our, like our bodies, our hands, our feet. In the Bible, we see, we see examples of members being used for unrighteousness. We look at David when his eyes were used to look at Bathsheba and when his hands were used to kill Bathsheba's husband, when his feet were, I don't know, walking away from God. For us, we see also in the Bible when, when hands and feet are used for righteousness with Jesus himself walking to, 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 through the world that wants to kill him and using his hands to heal people. For us, we have that ability to use our instruments for righteousness or unrighteousness. So today, as we, as we talk about this, it, it reminds me of a story in the Bible, the story of Lazarus being raised, raised from the dead. So Jesus had, has, has a close friend, his name is Lazarus, and he has his sisters, Mary and Martha. And so Jesus gets sent word from Mary and Martha that Lazarus is sick. Like, we don't know why he's sick, we, we just know he's sick. So Jesus goes, you know, since one of my best friends is sick, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay where I'm at for two more days. He's like, if someone was sick, like if, if, if like... Someone I love was dying. I wouldn't wait two days and then go see them. I'd go now. I'd go now. So he waits two days, and by the time he gets there, Lazarus, like, logically dies. He doesn't make it. Well, the next logical thing he does is Jesus waits for two more days. And he's like, well, Jesus, we know you're, we know you're the Messiah and the Savior. Go heal him. And he's like, well, I'm like, don't worry. He's just asleep right now. He'll wake up soon. It's like, no, he's literally dead. He's buried. He's in a tomb like Jesus. He wrapped in all of his clothes, like or cloth. That they wrapped Jesus in what they called the, the grave cloths. Like, it's what they ritually did to Jewish people when they died. And so he's like, he's just sleeping. And he goes, you know, Lazarus is dead. It's like, okay, cool. What Jesus does, he commands them to open the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus walks out of the grave, covered in his in his cloth, all wrapped up, and says, tied by his hands and his feet, and says there was a stench from, from the death that was in there. He was in there for four days. Like, clearly, if someone's stuck in a tomb for four days, they're dead. It's Jesus trying to prove the point that he was dead. Not like, cool, he was in there for a few minutes, and his heart stopped for a couple seconds, and I said, no, like, he was dead. He was decomposing. That's the smell that, that's coming out of there. But as Jesus says, Lazarus comes forth, he's showing that he obviously raised someone from the dead, but it turns more into just the physical miracle, but also to the spiritual implications for us. When Jesus asked Lazarus to come out of the grave, it's like us getting new life. But that doesn't just stop there. When, when, the, when he's all tied up and Jesus asked him to take his grave cloths off, he's showing that for us, we need, we need to brush the sin off in our life because that's no longer us. The grave cloth represented something that he no longer was. He was no longer dead, therefore he didn't need the cloth anymore. For you and I, we're no longer dead in Christ, therefore our old life, the sin that's, that's from there, is something that just needs to be taken off. Instead, we're made alive in Christ and that's no longer what our, our bodies represent. Tonight, my hope is that we begin to understand what it means to be more like Jesus and how to, how to use our newness of life, our new life, the fact that we're no longer dead, to be more like him. That's where this idea of sanctification comes in. I see this idea of sanctification literally means to be set apart, to be holy. When you see something be sanctified, it means to be holy. Like it's where the word saint comes from or like sanctum as like a place that is holy. Like it, it, it means for us to be holy. 
And so today, as we look at this passage, we see that Jesus allows us to be sanctified in him, that we are set apart. Well, set apart from what? We're set apart from the world, set apart from our sin, set apart from, from, from death that was our label. In other words, sanctification is this idea of, of growth as a Christian or, or, or sanctification is Christian growth. When we think of this idea of holiness, we think of like, you know, it should be like a special priest, like we're talking about the Holy of Holies or someone who dresses all nice and, you know, they act like this like reverent, like ethereal person. Now, holiness is just being more like God. So in having this new life, we are challenged, we're commissioned, we are commanded to be more like him because the sin that made us separate from God is no longer a label and we are now set apart to be like God. But there's different types of sanctification. This is where it kind of gets like, you know, theological, but I want you guys to know what this is. There are three types of sanctification to help understand who we are as Christians. So the first one is, is positional sanctification. This is the idea that I was saved. We, when, when Jesus died on the cross, where that justification happened, we are, like, we were saved. We were forgiven. Like, he's forgiven all, like I said, past, present, and future sins of yours and mine and all people for humanity. We were positionally sanctified. We were positionally set apart. When we, when we believed in God, that we were saved. But then there's practical sanctification. This is the idea that I am being saved. This idea of like, this is why we read our Bibles. This is why we pray. This is why we go to church and do nice things and we follow the, the, the commandments in the Bible because this is what makes us to be more like God. This is why the Bible is set to inform all the things in our life, how we spend our money, who we spend our time with, how we act, how we dress, the, the, the careers we do and don't do because it's part of making us more like God. We are being saved. And lastly is this idea of perfect sanctification. This is I will be saved. This is the idea of us going to heaven one day. This is the idea of, of the glorification that will take place when we get to be present with God in his dwelling in heaven. The third one is, is something that hasn't happened yet to anyone who is alive currently because we're alive and not with God yet. But the first two are the two I want us to focus tonight, positional and practical. Because these two are defined markers of how we move into being more like God. The positional is, is the idea that some of us here tonight may not have trusted Jesus with our hearts, with our lives. Maybe not believe in him. Maybe this whole Bible thing is just mumbo jumbo. It's not even worth believing in. But the people who haven't trusted in their heart with trusted Jesus in their heart and, and made him the center of their life, then, then this idea of positional sanctification is something that, that needs to happen in order for us to be more like him. The second challenge is for people who have accepted Jesus, but for all of us who have accepted him already, we still got work to do. We still sin, like I said. So for us to take the steps into knowing him, we have to know practically what that means. That's why it's called practical sanctification. It's really what are we doing with our life to be more like Jesus? The first thing is pretty, pretty simple. It's just to know him better. How do you know him? Through his word. There's 2.2 billion Christians in the world, who at least people who identify themselves as Christians, but we live in the most illiterate time of Bible reading. Think about it like this. There's 2.2 billion people. So there, there's more Bibles that have ever been printed, more people who, who heard the name of Jesus than ever in history, more people to, to have access, free access. You can download an app or just get a Bible from the back in so many different places. But we live in the most illiterate time in, in Bible history. 
So how can God expect us to be more like him if we do not know the words he has for us? The simple thing to know him and to be like him, to be sanctified with him, is literally just to know his word. It's a day in, day out studying his word. Like if for the amount of times I spent time in like a textbook in high school or college or whatever, if I spent time in my Bible, I feel like I'd know God a whole lot better like exponentially than I would now. I'm, I'm sure for a lot of us in here, that's the same thing. To understand God, to know how to be like God, to live a life that is set apart to be with him and to, to live differently from the world is literally just knowing him and knowing who we are in light of him. For most of us in here who might call ourselves Christians or who, who believe in Jesus, this is just the basic step we can take to just start having that practically sanctified life and living in the fact that we have a newness in life. The idea of being holy is not for us to be shameful in the fact that we're not holy enough or to live in the fact to be held or bound by the sin that we've had in our life. I'm sure for many of us, there's stuff in our life that we, that we might hold on to thinking like regret and shame of, of why we made those actions and, and why God placed those things in our life and why I did this and why I did that and God, I'm not good enough and God, I don't deserve to be with you. God, why do you save me? God, why, why I don't deserve this. But we are no longer bound by sin because Jesus gives us new life. And some of us don't know that or have forgotten that because of the things that happen in our life. For you guys tonight, whether you know Jesus or you don't, there is truth in the idea that Jesus gives us new life. That when he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. And when he came alive, we came alive. In a new life to know him, to live for him, and to set the example for the rest of the world so that we would be set apart to bring people to know him as well. The whole Bible is riddled with this idea that we are supposed to live differently. If we don't live differently, if we, if we say we believe in Jesus and our life stays the same and we, we have the Bible conform to us, then we're not living a sanctified life. We, we're not even at this position, uh, this, uh, either sanctification, because we're choosing to put God out of it and put us first. Guys, I hope you know that for those of you who trust in Jesus, you have new life. For those of you who don't, you can't have new life. Because Jesus gives you new life, and he saves you and forgives you, and he makes us right with him when we put our trust in him. So tonight, as we open back up in Romans, in the next few weeks, we're going to be moving this idea of how Jesus has saved us for us to be with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the life you give us, God. We thank you for the idea that we can be more like you. God, I pray for, the, for all of us here tonight that we would not be held back by our sin. We'd not be held back by the things in our life that we have shame or regret for or, or the things that we're uncertain about, Father, but we would just have certainty and the idea that you are the God who gives us life. That in trusting in you and knowing you and being more like you, God, and seeking to be sanctified and set apart to be like you, Father, that we would have our lives focused around you, God, knowing your word, knowing your truth, and living a life that honors you, God. I pray that tonight, as, as we leave here, we would take this idea of not just leaving our Christianity at the door, but making our life all the things that, that you put in it about you, Father. So we love you, and give this night to you. In your name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. 
Thanks again for listening.